I live with a bunch of crazy people. Welcome back to the Admissions Uncovered podcast with me, Ni, and your other hosts, Dominic and Michael. Today's show is brought to you by listeners like you. We need your help to grow this podcast. If you find this podcast helpful, go to bit.ly slash aupodapple and give us five stars on iTunes. Every five-star review helps new listeners find our podcast. So today, we're talking about the distinctions between liberal arts colleges and research schools, or the lack thereof. Near the end, we'll talk about Harvard's record-breaking fundraising efforts. But first, what's the difference between liberal arts colleges and research schools? So, Michael, do you want to start us off and help us define the two? Yeah, so the difference between liberal arts schools and research universities was a lot bigger in the past. And so the generic differences are that liberal arts colleges tend to focus on a more broad, non-pre-professional education. So they're going to make you and require you to read things like the classics, the Iliad, Homer, Voltaire, Plato, all the dead white guys that are essential in the traditional Western canon, whereas research universities tend to not have uh, have those but not require them for everybody. Research universities tend to, as their name implies, have a lot more focus on research. Now, the real distinction, though, and that those were the traditional distinctions that most people think of, and especially older people. Today, though, the differences between liberal arts schools and research universities are not actually that much. Um, liberal arts schools now have some research majors happen at uh, most liberal arts schools and research universities. Some liberal arts schools have even started offering engineering uh, courses and other STEM courses. Um, so it's a lot different. I think the biggest real difference between the two today is that liberal arts colleges will usually to basically always be smaller than research universities, and they tend to be a lot more undergraduate focused if they even have a graduate program at all. So as Michael was saying, here are a few examples of um, liberal arts colleges and research universities. So your top liberal arts colleges um, that have really high rankings would be Williams College, um, Amherst, Bowdoin, Pomona, and also the um, all-girls college um, Wellesley, among others. And these are really high, highly ranked liberal arts colleges with, as Michael said, a focusing on like a well-rounded education, but also um, focusing a lot on research, which kind of blurs the line between the difference between liberal arts colleges and research universities. As I know, a rep came to our school, um, a Wellesley rep came to our school and was talking about how they have a really robust research program, how they're... Um, research opportunities and how their neuroscience program is really strong, which actually kind of surprised me because at first I kind of like most people thought liberal arts was mainly focused on a well-rounded, more more of a well-rounded education and not really focusing on research. And then the research universities are going to be the schools that have been around a long time. These are probably the colleges you think about when you first think about colleges and which ones you're wanting to apply to. Obviously, you're going to have all of your Ivy Leagues and top tier schools uh, like, you know, Princeton, Yale, Harvard, Stanford, MIT. And then you're also going to have your um, your other top tier schools that have, are known for, you know, deep medical research or deep other research like Johns Hopkins. And these are established schools that have been around a long time. I would say a lot of the younger schools are liberal arts schools, but we're kind of seeing sort of emerging uh, between these two schools. So now we'll talk about the differences that still exist between them that you can divide these schools. Yeah, I think 
it's very true that the difference between liberal arts colleges and research universities are really going away. So, you know, like one thing that used to be a major difference is that STEM used to be something that liberal arts colleges did not have at all. That was solely at colleges and universities called research universities. That is definitely, definitely going away. Most of the top tier liberal arts colleges will also have STEM majors. Some even have engineering. For example, Swarthmore uh, actually has a fairly well-known engineering program. And even if your liberal arts school doesn't have an engineering program, there are typically transfer options or three plus one or three plus two plans. Uh, what a three plus one or a three plus two plan is, is you spend your first three years of college at a liberal arts college, uh, say Swarthmore, Williams, and even a place like Columbia College. And you apply to a three plus one or a three plus two engineering transfer program. The School of Engineering and Applied Sciences here at Columbia has one of those options. So you apply into that program and spend the last year or the last two years of your college career doing your engineering degree. So you get both your liberal arts education plus your engineering education. So even that difference, the difference in uh, lack of engineering between liberal arts schools and research universities is going away. And now recently, a lot of schools have been partnering with each other. So liberal arts schools and research and research universities will allow students to take classes at the different schools, depending on what they're specialized in, so that you can get a broader range of classes taught at a higher level. Yeah, so like um, what Michael said with Swarthmore, Swarthmore um, students can also take classes at UPenn and also at Bryn Mawr. So it's kind of a more, you get both the liberal arts side from Swarthmore and a more of um, focused research university type over at UPenn. It's, it's, so that's called the Quaker Consortium. Um, and that's like another school is like Bryn Mawr. Um, yeah, and I forgot the other ones. Uh, ha- Havermeyer is another one, Havermeyer. So Haverford, Haverford whatever it is. Um, it is, uh, it is a kind of a unique model. So California, Pepperdine is in one of the relations, is in a similar relationship with, I think, um, like Santa Monica something like that. Um, So there definitely are relationships between schools. One thing I will note, though, is that when you bring the Quaker Consortium and being able to take class at at other Quaker Quaker Consortium schools at um, the the schools in it, so for example, what I know of is when you mentioned that Swarthmore, they say it's allowed, but then they add to it that, oh, Swarthmore classes are so good that you probably won't need to go to the other schools. So basically, if... (laughs) Swarthmore or the school that you're going currently uh, uh, attending has the course, you have to take it. Well, you don't have to, but it's generally highly, highly encouraged to take it Advice. at that school. Um, and so, you know, you know, like UPenn probably has a better neuroscience department with better professors than a liberal arts college might. So, you know, just keep that in mind as you're making that distinction. Don't don't rely on the fact that you can take classes in other schools because yeah. it might not happen. So don't try to apply just worth more thinking you can just take a bunch of UPenn classes and it'll be exactly the same. Yeah, you're not going to be take you're not you're going to take majority of your classes at your home school. What about the whole thing with like Claremont McKenna Scripps Pomona like that whole thing? Is That's that the one I was thinking. Don't of, they also yeah, have? I think they do have something like that. I forget what it was called, but I definitely know they had a little consortium thing. Yeah, and then also. Most of the liberal arts colleges, they won't have um, like pre-profession- that many pre-professional programs, so like your standard pre-med programs, even though 
Most schools, even research universities, are going away from a pre-med major, but you won't find pre-med or like pre-dental or those more pre-professional um, programs at liberal arts colleges because they still kind of look more for a well-rounded general education foundation. And then for your professional programs, you would go on to a graduate school and pursue a graduate degree. One thing I'll note there is that in in general, though, uh, a lot of schools are not offering the type of pre-professional explicit, like this is pre-law, this is pre-med. You don't major in those things anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a trap. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the only exception is if you know you want to go to an undergrad B school, then a liberal arts college will typically, well, probably not have business specific, like MBA type coursework that Wharton or UT's business honors program might. But if you don't want that, then it's totally fine if a liberal arts college doesn't have that option. Um, Yeah. As you can see um, through what we've researched and what we said, there aren't major, really major differences between a liberal arts college and a research universities. But however, um, if there had to be a, a distinction, it would be the size of the school. As Michael mentioned earlier, liberal arts colleges tend to be smaller, which allows you to have more access to professors due to the smaller class size. And also, most liberal arts colleges don't have a graduate school associated with it. So you won't have to be competing for internships and research opportunities with grad students, which is usually a big problem for students who go to the bigger research universities because most of their internships sometimes would be taken by graduate students. So it's just really considering if you want a smaller um, smaller school, a more like tight-knit community, then maybe looking at a liberal arts college would, uh, would be right for you. But don't get dissuaded by thinking if you go to a liberal arts college, you won't be able to pursue research or more STEM-focused courses because, as we found, um, that's not true. It's kind of going away away from what it was like in the past. Yep. On Nee's point of access to professors, I've definitely been hearing recently from, you know, college rep visits and, uh, you know, them giving presentations to classes at my school. Uh, The liberal arts schools are definitely trying to focus on providing that individual aspect of learning to the student. Uh, They're very, they take high pride in having that uh, time to give the students the office hours uh, that they build into the schedule for all of their professors and the students feeling that they can approach them and that they're never going to be lost. Where at a research uh, school, you might have larger class sizes and the professor might be teaching more classes. You might not have the best access to them. Yeah. And I'll even speak to that as someone who goes to Columbia, which is really big. It's just a really big school is that the teachers here are required to have office hours but because class sizes aren't as small as you might see in a small liberal arts colleges, people are competing to get in to the office hours, especially when, for example, like I have an essay coming up in three weeks. So people are already starting to come in. It's already hard to get an appointment or do walk-in office hours. Um, so there's definitely a dimension to liberal arts colleges that is really attractive because, you know, professors doing research need assistance. Um they, I think, would prefer at a big school to take graduate students because they just know more. But at a liberal arts college, they're you know, stuck with the undergraduates. They're stuck with you guys, even if they don't want to be. <laughs> so it's obviously just like <laughs> logically, mathematically easier to get into research as a young student at a liberal arts college. 
you know, Michael, while we're talking about office hours, since a lot of our listeners are going to be high school students um, and they're getting ready to go off to college, do you want to explain a little bit about what office hours are and how to go into college knowing how to work that system? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. This is a dimension that's different between private schools and public schools. This week, uh, I went down to some of New York's top private schools to do some flyering for GAO admissions in st- uh, sh- stores in the area. <laughs> Yeah, I just like I I, I have a friend who went to Nightingale Banford and she told me some of the good places where high school kids hang out and to put up some flyers. Um, But I went down to that region, kind of saw the area. It's way different uh, than basically 99.5 percent of all public schools in the area. These are richest, bougiest private schools or just schools in general (laughs) I've ever seen. And I, I was only on the outside. Um, but one big difference uh, internally in private schools is that they have office hours, particularly kind of private boarding schools that are much more collegiate-like. Professors do have office hours you know, in the evening or in the afternoon. And so I think that's one interesting difference between um, a private school education and a public school education. So for the public school kids out here who have no idea what office hours are, here's what they are. Um, A professor typically sets aside maybe two hours a week. Um, Language professors here at Columbia typically set up more, but I think two hours is the basic minimum that you can just walk up to the professor, walk up to your teacher and ask any question or have a conversation. And the specifics and logistics are going to depend on the professor and depend on the time. So I'll give an example. My uh, literature humanities professor, or if you come to Columbia, lit hum professor uh typically has just walk-in office hours we just walk in and talk to him and they're typically one-on-one interactions um now because we have the essay coming up he's making us do appointments there are some teachers that always have walk-in appointments or just always just do walk-in office hours but sometimes they interact with a group of students rather than just one-on-one so it honestly depends on your situation but in general office hours is just you taking advantage of a time where you get to interact with the teacher outside of class it's it's basically like high school tutoring uh, except on a collegiate level with the professor and there will most likely be less amount of time for office hours than tutoring because i remember at my school at least the teachers were always just in their classrooms whereas professors are doing more and out and about more and also if you have like a grad student as your professor or a lecturer as their professor they might not be on campus every single day so you might not just be able to walk into their office and talk to them. they might not have an office like my lit time professor doesn't have his own personal office so it depends on the situation but that's generally what it is As Michael said, there's kind of a distinction between public and private schools, even um, in high school. And in college, it's more about whether you go to a smaller school or a bigger school. There's also a social dimension, kind of a different feel that goes with going to a smaller college compared to going to a bigger university like Columbia University. So Dominic, do you want to kind of talk about um, our school and how it's extremely small? and kind of like the vibe you get from it? Yeah, our school is very small. I know we talked about it a lot before. Right now, our class is 70 students, but they're expanding the school so that now the freshman class and then every class after will be 150. So it's going to more than double the size of the school in four years, which would be interesting to see how that plays out. But coming from a rather large middle school going to a very small high school, um, I've definitely felt the change in, you know, just the social structure of the school. It's very different being at a bigger school 
And I think that if there's anything my high school experience has taught me is I don't want to go to a very small <laughs> college. I just kind of like the, like, you know, lots of people feel big space that that's more my style. Uh, you know, if you're a student that goes to really big high school and you don't like it, maybe a smaller liberal arts school is what you're looking for. Um, it just kind of depends on what experiences you had. If you've been able to do a fly-in program or go visit a school um, and you really don't know what you're looking for, try to, you know, look around, ask friends that might've gone to these schools, what they think about it. And definitely do your research ahead of time because you don't want to get to school and then, not enjoy the setting that you're in. So Dominic, why didn't you like the small school attack? I know um, early last episode mm. you told a interesting story about people gossiping about your college list, which is the nerdiest thing I've ever heard. And if you want to listen to that story, listen to the previous episode at bit.ly slash aupod17. But Dominic, advantages and disadvantages of going to a small school. Why I don't like the smaller setting is probably in that I'm just a, I'm a social person, so I enjoy having a greater availability of people just to kind of talk to. With more people, you're going to have these other, you know, clubs and experiences and activities that you can go and do. Um, our school is definitely limited on the things that we can do with the students, um, not only in clubs and stuff, but, you know, through state rules uh, with UIL, you know, no sports. I know Michael was super bummed being the jock of the podcast. He couldn't play sports in high school. Oh, yeah. I was so disappointed. <laughs> he had to settle for a debate. Right. <laughs> did you get a Letterman jacket? I did. I did. I got one from Allen oh, High School. There you go. So I can look like a football player if I wear the Allen High School one. And I also got a law magnet one, which I never wore, I think. Well, you can wear it at Columbia. I'm not wearing my high school Letterman jacket <laughs> at Columbia. That would be very embarrassing. That was good. That's what all the jocks do, Michael. Come Even on. the jocks don't wear Relive high school fame. clothes. They have their new uniforms that they wear around. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I can kind of make the most of any environment that I'm put in, but I definitely don't really enjoy the super small setting, which is why I'm not looking at super small schools. Uh, you know, obviously it's going to be bigger than almost any high school out there having, you know, 1,700 undergrads or whatever the school is going to have. But I definitely don't want it to be 70 per class. <laughs> <laughs> so based off of that, how many liberal arts colleges do you actually have on your college list? Because you kind of sound like you're shying away from them. Ooh. Um, so I have one, <laughs> I believe. Which on one? List. Oh. And hold up. Let me, can I, let me confirm this. I'm keeping this in the podcast. This isn't oh. being edited out. <clears throat> Michael said it was, and I'm just trying to uh, make oh, sure. Boston College? Yes. Yep, so um, Boston Isn't College you is... Isn't Chicago one too? No, it's definitely not a liberal arts school. I believe no? it's research. I thought it was like, they're advocating it's like a liberal arts college located within a larger research university. Well, that's what every research university says. Like, that's what Columbia says, too. Columbia has it legitimately because we have the core, things like Litham and um, contemporary civilization that reads a lot of the um, old white guy, Western tradition, Western canon. So we have a – and UChicago has a very similar core curriculum, so we have a pretty more pretty legitimate claim to it. But most big schools, most big Ivy League schools in particular, will also call themselves liberal arts school, which, again, goes to the fact that there isn't a real distinction between them um, at all anymore. Yeah, right. So for for the uh, for my list, um, Boston College is the sole liberal arts school on my list. The reason it's on there is I wanted that kind of diversity in the list, just in case I 
discover that later one. on. I have a, a mix of programs on my list in order, you know, just in case if I change my mind at the end of senior year or whatever, when I'm picking schools or something didn't work out with an application like I thought it would, um, I would definitely have options when picking which school I want to go to. I also like Boston, and then they also have a core curriculum, so it's not completely open, um, where I wouldn't, you know, kind of know what I would want to do or be super free. You know, I can still take that core curriculum, but also focus on what I want to do. I also really like the campus, so. Fair. Points all around the board. Well, on my list, I actually have one more liberal arts college than Dominic does, so I have- two. Nice. Yes, two. Diversity. Um, I have Bowdoin and Amherst. I'm actually really interested in Bowdoin. I actually applied for their fly-in, and I have an interview nice. with nice. them in October. So it's kind of like... Because um, our counselor was telling us about how for schools like Bowdoin and Amherst and kind of more still really good liberal arts colleges, so students that apply there with usually with higher test scores and uh, I guess a really a really good application, they totally deserve to get in, but the only thing that might um not get them in is like the interest they show to the school because most of these schools they know if you're this certain type of student you're probably going to be applying to ivy leagues and other top tier schools and if you get into those schools they'll you you more than likely will go to those schools and not go to their schools so she advised me to show more demonstrated interest and stuff like that so which is also a good tip for those of you who are also looking are looking to Ivies, but are also more of these mid-tier, but still really good schools, make sure you show demonstrated interest, because in case those Ivy applications don't work out, because of the the risk with really low acceptance rates, that you still get the opportunity to go to other really good um, colleges. Well, in general, you should be showing demonstrated interest to schools that care about it, and liberal arts colleges tend to be um, those types of schools. Um, mm-hmm. On my college list, I had one small liberal arts college worth more, uh, got accepted, and they gave me a full tuition scholarship, but I knew I wanted a bigger school, so I applied to – so I went to Columbia in New York City, which is big school and a big city. Uh, so definitely, I think, was correct in that decision. The reason why I applied to Swarthmore is honestly because I went to their fly-in, and um, they gave me a fee waiver – and at the time, I didn't know that I had fee waivers to all my schools, so I just applied the day after the fly-in. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I had a good interview. It was a nice campus, um, cool campus, um, generally nice people, generally nice professors, but I knew I wanted a big school. And I and I, I, and I felt comfortable fighting for professors' attention. Like, I think I'll be fine in that regard. Um <laughs> I will say, uh, as, a, as a final note on how like ridiculous the distinction really is, um, you can still be an English major at a place like Harvard, which you would call a research university. Um, you can take liberal arts classes, and sometimes there are even required liberal arts curriculums at big schools. Like, as I mentioned earlier, Chicago and Columbia have core curriculums. And so that's not a real reason to choose the liberal arts school. On the flip side, if you really want to go a STEM major, that's not a reason to pick a big school either. It might be even better to pick a small school so you have more research opportunities. Uh, so the distinction really isn't that big. I think the, the real choice you should be thinking about is whether you want to go to a big school or a small school because liberal arts schools tend to be smaller. I think that is the major distinction that you should actually 
be carrying it now. So, Michael, let me ask you a question mm-hmm. about that. <clears throat> um, do you think that using the uh, liberal arts versus research institution is a valid criteria for building your college? No, list? I um, I think it's better to think small versus large school. And the re- and the, the other reason why is that there are res- there are research universities that are really small and that have mostly undergrad students like Princeton University for example there are more undergrads than grad students on Princeton's campus and in addition to that I don't even know if they have that many graduate programs um, in fact Princeton doesn't have a med school at all well all this just goes back to making sure you pick the right school assessing many criteria among one of them small versus big but also like you're the major you want to pursue, the programs they offer. So it's a big consideration going into what schools you want to have on your college list. I mean, the only real difference I kind of see is if you're choosing between um, a Swarthmore and an MIT or like a really, really technical school versus just a general research university. Because if you go to MIT and you only want to major in English – or Caltech. Yeah, or Caltech or Caltech's like anything one. with the name tech in it, I guess. Like polytechnic or whatever. Like if you go to a really technical school and you're wanting to major in English, then it's like either pick a liberal arts school or a more general research university. That's the only compelling reason why I think liberal arts college still deserves like a place in the kind of distinctions game. But in general, it's really not something that I would put too much weight on. Um, I would put most of my attention on the size of the school and the undergraduate to graduate ratio, if you're concerned about those things. Because that's the true distinction. I think liberal arts college and research universities is an outdated um, way to way to make distinctions. Now we want to cover some updates in the college world that have been going on recently. I know we haven't been covering as much of the news related colleges in our recent episodes and that's something we'll definitely be aiming to fix in the future so hopefully most of you guys have heard about this new um news regarding rice university and their new what um financial aid plan which is going to be known as the rice investment so basically what it is is it will take in effect um the fall of 2019 so for those of you who are seniors that are planning to apply to rice or are looking um at the school this might be something that will be very beneficial for you. So basically what the Rice investment is, is that for any family making less than $65,000 a year, Rice will pay will give basically give you a full ride that includes tuition, books, um, room and board. So everything you basically will be going to um, Rice for free. And then any family making from $65,000 to $130,000, Rice will offer you full tuition, and you will only have to pay for room and board, um, your books, food, your meal plans. But the only thing about this is, I think Dominic looked it up, it's still about $20,000 for all of that, um, which is still a big sum, so you also got to be careful if you fall within that range. And for family incomes from $130,000 to $200,000, you can... Um, receive scholarships that will cover up to at least or at least half of your tuition and for families making above two hundred thousand dollars they will be giving um, packages without loans which is also a big thing because rice is one of the more pricier colleges so this rice investment thing is a very um, beneficial plan that will make rice more affordable for lower income families 
So real-time follow-up, it's not $20,000. Room and board, according to Rice's cashier's office, it obviously depends on the room you're uh, living in or if you're living in an off-campus housing. But the most expensive option for you is uh, $14,000 for a place in a residential college. So it's not $20,000. $14,000 would be the housing amount. Yeah. But they're so it's still getting full tuition. But as you know, college has so many extra fees besides its tuition. So if you fall within the sixty-five thousand dollars to one hundred thirty thousand dollars range, you'll still be having to pay probably ten to fifteen thousand dollars because you can still get outside financial aid besides this rice investment. But it's definitely a big thing that rice is really proud of of trying to make college more affordable. And I think it's like actually a really, really big deal because in the past, people in this range wouldn't have gotten that amount. Like I, from Rice, did not get that amount of financial aid. And I fall between the categories where I would now have had a full tuition scholarship. So it is a very big deal. It's a very big deal. For the middle class, especially. Yeah. And this type of packages usually comes from the you know top tier of league schools. So I like to see that Rice is getting up there matching those schools. Um, but something I'd say just about the we, – we got into a little discussion about the price of college and then how much they're giving you relative to how much you're going to have to pay. And the price of college has gotten it – you know, it's shot up and inflated oh so gosh. much over the most recent years that I think the only way to actually look at the cost of college is not, you know, the total cost of attendance or how much money they're giving you. But, you know, how much your money you're going to have to pay in the For year. Sure. You know, this school – they could give you $50,000, but the, the cost of the school is like $200,000 <laughs> a year. I mean, yeah. What? Two hundred thousand. Hey, you just wait like ten years, Nee. It's gonna happen. Yeah. I mean, on that note, I feel like, like obviously, college costs like a lot of money. There's no disputing it. But some of the incidental fees are really overplayed. For example, like <laughs> mm-hmm. textbooks. Yes, there are examples of textbooks costing two hundred dollars, and it's crazy. But. You can also get them for much cheaper, reused books, online PDFs that you can get potentially illegally, so I'm not recommending it or anything, or saying that I did it. Definitely not saying that. But you can get PDFs (laughs) of the books for free. So, you know, like, some things are a little bit overhyped. This is also following the trend of, I think it was like a few weeks ago, NYU also made their medical school free for all current students and all future Mm -hmm. students. So I think hopefully more and more schools are going to start realizing how ridiculous college is and they're probably not going to lower the price but they're going to give start giving more scholarships because to be honest who can afford really eighty thousand dollars a year like one percent of the people that are actually going well i don't know if that it's that well yes but it's it's still insane i still can't believe you do you really expect um middle class lower class to um family to pay seventy thousand dollars a year for their kid to go to college well like the composition of these school like these ivy league schools aren't majority like middle class and they're certainly not majority low income i'll say that for sure yeah you know Mm -hmm. most of the kids here if they didn't get financial aid and they really wanted to go to an ivy league school would like make it work they would make it work their parents have the wherewithal obviously like not a lot or like not 75 90 percent of the kids but a significant chunk of the kids here, like, would have made it work. I, I would have made it work. I was, I'm going to an Ivy League school. We would have figured it out. You know. I don't know. Just got to be wise. Just think about it. Especially if you're planning to go to graduate school, consider how much you're willing to pay for your undergrad education. So speaking of um, <clears throat> financial aid, 
Harvard just broke the record for the highest educational campaign, uh, which brought in $9.6 billion. Uh, that's pretty pretty amazing. Yes. <laughs> and what are they going to use that money for? Yep. So the money, well, originally the goal was $6.5 billion. And it's a, it was a five-year campaign that they started, um, and it's just to come to a conclusion. They beat that goal by $3.1 billion. That's some, some good math right there. That's that calculus <laughs> BC math. Let me tell you. Um, but it definitely shattered the previous record. And the funds are said to have been raised through the latest campaign, which will be allotted to financial aid, house renewal, endowed, endowed professorships, and research initiatives, including projects focused on climate change and cancer research. Oh. Which is interesting. That's I'm glad to see. good for Harvard. Yep. I mean. Oh, yeah. We were also looking up their endowment. <laughs> yeah. Which There's is not like much to say there. It's like 37 $35 billion. $35 billion endowment. What, richer They also than- make really great returns on that money. I would love to know how they're uh, investing that. I think there was some of the stats about the, the actual like return on the investment are out there. Um, I will say though, is that it is a lot of money, but don't think that just because the school has a big endowment that that money is getting used on student financial aid or on students in general. There's some really interesting statistics about on there about how colleges and universities are just hoarding their endowments and not at all even spending them. It's just in the rainy day fund investing. And a lot of the money is spent on staff and admin. If you come to Columbia, you're going to see how much money they spend on staff and admin just because how big the Columbia bureaucracy is. Like I've only been here for three weeks and I already know how ridiculous it is. So don't think that a big endowment means a bit better experience for you because they could be using the money on stupid things like the, the, the salary of their president or if you go to Columbia – making a new campus that's um, gentrifying a uh, traditionally African-American part of Harlem without care toward the minority. Yeah. We have a new campus called Manhattanville in Harlem that's uh, has some controversy because Columbia isn't like made a deal with local communities to help them with the kind of like the moving because the local communities have to move because Columbia is obviously moving in. So the communities have to move out. Yeah. And so Columbia is not living up to their, end of the bargain which is another story but it just goes to show more money does not mean better education also in recent college news uh, stanford has decided to no longer publish their admission rates uh, in the coming years and they say this is in an effort to end the race among elite colleges for low admission rate numbers um, nowadays you know with the common app and people pushing for these top tier institutions these admission rates have gone all the way down to small single-digit numbers. Uh, Harvard's, I believe, is, what, 5%, 4% now? And I believe their regular admission rates, and so not including the larger proportion of students they admit from the pool in early admission, was like 3.5% or something, Yeah, which is crazy. <laughs> but apparently, Stanford's admission rate is about 4% now, and that's down from 20% in the 1980s. So these schools have these emission rates have definitely gone down. Yeah, but it's, it's definitely interesting. Um, I don't see the uh, numbers of applicants dropping off anytime soon, and I also don't see these top-tier schools expanding too much, so they will definitely continue dropping. Um, and I, al- I almost think that with them not being published, they might have more applicants, because I, I don't know. I don't know about you, but if you see a 4% acceptance rate, you might shy away That's from the true. school. I don't know. <clears throat> but now if you're not, you know, putting it on the public, they don't know what it is. But I guess you could kind of, you know, do the math. I mean, you know how many students they're going to take in. You could probably see how many applicants they have somewhere. Yeah. I mean, you could 
there'd probably be ways to estimate it. I mean, one way to think about it is just like um, the people who would not have applied because of the admissions rate, who care really deeply about the admissions rates, probably know, just like they know that the rates are going to be low. You know, they might not know if it's 4.8 or 4.82, but they know it's low. Yeah. Um, and so I guess it, it's still like it, it doesn't affect Stanford's prestige at all. Stanford's in a position that they mm, can pull definitely. it off without it really affecting their yeah, numbers. Yeah, I mean, they can do yeah, whatever they yeah. want and they're still going to be Stanford. I mean, they don't yeah. care. But Although they did fall in the recent U.S. News and College Report rankings. If you haven't followed that, Columbia oh, is now up at number three, beating out Stanford, which is at number seven. So. Seven. Just thought I'd let Okay, you well, know. there are a lot of, like, three-way ties, so. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of schools tied. Well, our high school is continually falling. Yeah, your high school is what? Number 11? That's, uh... Yikes. We don't talk about that. No no wonder Mackie is trying his new thing. Growth versus uh, no talking about grades, <laughs> etc. <laughs> growth over yeah, grades. Yeah, growth over grades. <clears throat> no, honestly, I mean, I talked about it earlier, how they're expanding... That is not going to increase their rank. Obviously, the rank is not the main goal of the school. Wow. But, I mean, you know, it's it's not going to help as far. Because it, it's based off of testing. And with more kids testing, you're not going to have better scores. True. It's, it's the district's idea to expand it. So it's not, I mean, it's not the school choosing to expand. Because they're like, you know, it's working. So let's expand it. Let's double it and not not give any real resources or support let's just double the school because since you're doing well why not but you know i mean well i mean part of it is that your school has been (laughs) not representative of dallas isd population for a very long time and now there's finally some rules like hey you can't just have like a billion white people and one hispanic and one black person you know i mean they started they started that it was like the year before ours so it was about four to five years ago uh, what, what basically what our school does for the listeners is they break up the district into different areas based on the feeder high schools, and then they take a certain amount. Basically, they take a certain amount of applicants from each of the areas tr- to try to balance out the diversity of the school. That's the very short, condensed version. That's also a really interesting thing here in New York, especially with the public schools here like Stuyvesant and Bronx Science. The kind of debate around uh, whether like having one single test is good, whether the pressure is too high, whether these schools are representative of the diverse New York population. P.S. They're not. Um, so it's an interesting, it's, 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 it's an interesting discussion, particularly in these types of big cities where there is a lot of disparity um, among like income disparities that are also um, racialized. So uh, teaser, there might be a new podcast coming your way about different high schools. So if you're interested in that, uh, send us an email or follow us on social media and send an email because I'd love to hear your thoughts on a podcast idea like that because it will be coming soon. All right. Thanks for listening to our episode about liberal arts colleges versus research schools. And as we can probably conclude, there really isn't a clear distinction anymore between those schools. So don't be too caught up between liberal arts colleges and research universities. Just try to find a school that you really like and would feel comfortable going to. And as always, we need your help to grow this podcast. So go to bit.ly slash aupodapple to subscribe and give us a 
a five-star rating. Every five-star rating helps a new listener find this podcast. And as always, feel free to reach out to us on our social media channels at AUPodFM on Twitter or at admissions.uncovered on Facebook and Instagram. Make sure you keep up with your college essays and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. In the past... So, Michael, do you... Oh. <laughs> <Go>. <laughs> oh my goodness. Classic. Classic. No, you got me. Do the do the nice transition. <laughs>